all there. <laughs> Good on you. Um, we've been talking the last few weeks about different images and concepts of God. In, Matthew, in uh, uh, sorry, John fourteen nine, Jesus made this statement. He said, <coughs> "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And there are a lot of misconceptions about the Father, who God is. And I was just talking with Jackie early this week, and the more I've been looking at this, I realise that instead of calling this as we have been God's Father heart, we've been looking at the, the God's Father heart, I think it's more representative of God's parental heart as opposed to Father. You know, when we hear the word Father, we can lock in a male authority figure in our life. It's interesting when you go back to Genesis, the Bible says that God created the male and female. So the Father, when he created humanity, the Father created male and he created female. And both of us have attributes that represent the Father. So when we say, when I stand up here and say Father, I don't want anyone to think I'm purely talking about the male, dominant male authority figure in your life, your Father. A lot of us have... uh, Receive things from our fathers, and a lot of us have also received things from our mothers as well that have shaped uh, the way that we see God and shaped the way that we see ourselves and so on. And so we've been looking at different misconceptions about God. I was brought up a certain way, and my parental figures in my life uh, gave me an image, created an image. And so when I come to God and I get saved, and all of a sudden I hear that God is a father, I've already got a picture of what that means because I'm already thinking about the parental figures in my life. And when we say that God uh, disciplines his children, I already think I know what that means, because I know how I was disciplined or not disciplined as a child. When we hear about the Father's love for us, well, we think we've got a picture, because we know what, how we were loved or were not loved by our mothers or our fathers as we grew up. You know? When we hear about the, the patience, God being a patient God, well, we have a picture of what that means, because we had parental figures in our life who did or did not show us patience. So we've got all these different images and things that have been moulded together to give us an image and a picture when we hear the word Father. So we've been looking at some of these misconceptions over the last few weeks, trying to break down some of the common (coughs) things that people think about God. Last week we looked at God is not a cosmic killjoy. Some people think that God is a cosmic killjoy. If you weren't here last week, jump on iTunes, have a listen to that. But uh, it's hard to to imagine that uh, God is out to squash our enthusiasm, squash our fun, squash our energy, squash our life. I mean, you just got to go back and have a look at the history of Israel to see that. Seven feasts that they weren't told you, you, if you got time, you can celebrate. He said, no, no, this is the law you have to have seven massive parties and we're not talking about an hour and a half on a Saturday night with your friends we're talking week-long festivals where God says you have to have parties you have to celebrate some things and so on you know you go to John chapter 2 and Jesus goes to a party and uh, the wine runs out and what does he do he turns water into wine and he doesn't just turn it into cheap stuff you know cheap wine and three-day growth he turns it into really really good quality wine and it's almost like he's saying you know when i come on the scene i don't i don't stop the party i don't snuff out the flame when i get involved i start the party i get things going you know but how many of us uh, from the image that maybe we had uh, from growing up maybe when we got a bit enthusiastic about something or we had a wild idea whatever how many of us were squashed straight away and the flame was put out it's almost like like the, the, the flame started to flicker on the top of the candle and someone just went put it out 
You know, we get excited about things as kids. Sometimes we say stupid things, we do dumb things, we, 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 we rattle off without thinking, and, you know, but we're, we're, we're just excited. We get excited about moments. And how many times, oh, I just calm it down, just quiet it down. So we had a bit of a look at that last week. And, and when jo- Jesus said in John 14, oh, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So now we go back to Jesus and we go, right, now, did Jesus display God as a cosmic killjoy? And I don't think he did when you go and you look at the gospel stories and the way that Jesus interrelated with people. This week, I want to look at the second big misconception I see about God. And the misconception is this, that he is a Santa Claus. Do you want to run the clip for me, Luke? Okay, Mr. Neeson, whenever you're ready. I see you when you're sleeping. I know when you're awake. Okay, that, that's good. Let's try it again, maybe a little more jolly. Pink Sam. I've seen you when you're sleeping. I know when you're awake. I watch you when you're sleeping. Oh, yeah. I know when you're awake. I know. I'm making a list and checking it twice. I'm going to find out who's naughty or nice. Okay, I, I think maybe that's a little too intimidating. Yeah, but I, if you don't mind me saying, I think it's right. You know, do you understand what Santa's saying here? It's, he's making a list. Naughty, nice, he's detailed. He's single-minded. He's an eye in the sky bringing swift judgment. Also bringing toys to children. Not the naughty ones. <laughs> He's bringing presents to children, but not the naughty ones. Not the naughty ones. Now, some of us have this view of God that God is like a Santa Claus. He knows whether you've been naughty. He knows whether you've been nice. He's watching. He's, as, as, as Liam so definitely put it, he's a, an eye in the sky about to bring swift judgment. And so he's up there and he's judging and he's making a list. And on that list over here are the naughty people. And over here is a list of people who've been good and they're the nice people. And you know what Santa Claus does with, with nice people? He comes once a year to your house. He flies all the way from the North Pole. He lands at your place on the roof. He goes down through the chimney. I don't know how he does it, but he does. He goes down the chimney and he leaves presents for you. He brings a blessing and gifts to those of you that are on the nice list. Who's on the nice list? thank God Santa's checking it twice twice but if you're naughty what happens what happens if you're on the naughty list well here's what happens Santa Claus loads up his sacks over there at the North Pole he flies across and he gets across the top of Ruth and Daniel's roof and he's flying up and he looks on them and he goes they're on the naughty list and so you know what Santa does he just keeps on going he just keeps on going you see, if you're on the nice list, then Santa will bless you. Santa will come to you. He'll presence himself with you. Santa will, will give you gifts. He will give you blessings. But if you're on the naughty list, Santa wants nothing to do with you. Santa won't even come near you if you're on the naughty list. Santa is the ultimate performance-based individual. 
He's the ultimate performance-based individual. He judges you for 364 days and he works one. That's Santa's resume right there. I'll sit back and I'll judge you for 364 days and one day a year I'll work. So I'm watching you and on one day a year I'll go and bring swift judgment or swift blessing, whatever. And it's amazing how many people have that image and picture of God. If we're good, if we're on the nice list, then we can expect that God would want to be with us, would want to spend time with us. If we're on the naughty list, then we should expect that God will just bypass us. He has no time for us. He's not interested in blessing you. He's not interested in answering your prayers. He's not interested in spending time with you. He's not interested in bringing anything to you. A lot of people have this image of God that he's the ultimate performance-based being. If I was to ask you this question, don't say nothing, but I want you to think for a second. I'm going to ask you a question. If I just did blank, then God would love me more. If I just did, you fill in the blank. If I just did blank, then God would love me more. Now, I don't want to show of hands or nothing, but if you can answer that question, then maybe you're struggling with an incorrect perspective of who God is. If I pray more, then God will... Maybe that'll be enough to get me on the nice list, you know? If I fast more, if I give more money, if I read more Bible, if I do more charitable deeds... If I do more in the life of the church, you know, instead of one morning tea a month, I'll do two. You know? If you can answer that question, then perhaps maybe you've got a few shifts to make in your image of God. Because God is not a Santa Claus. God doesn't love us or unlove us because of our performance. The God we serve is not a performance-based God. You know, we lived in India for years and nearly every God over in that nation is performance-based. In the morning when they would open up their little stores and stuff and you would walk past, before they served a customer, before they made a dollar, before they do anything, they would go through a whole list of rituals that they had to do. They would have to face their statue of their God. They would have to do certain things, light incense in certain places, you know, turn around, touch down, pick a bale of cotton, all that kind of stuff that they would have to do before they were able to then engage with the rest of the world. And if they didn't do that, they genuinely believed that they would not be blessed, that God wouldn't love them, that they wouldn't have prosperity, their kids wouldn't be taken care of, all these things. It all came back to their performance before God. And people that have a Santa Claus view of God live with that cloud that God is this performance, this being sitting up there waiting for us to impress him. And if you don't impress him enough, then you don't have any expectation of blessing. He will literally fly over the top of your roof and go on and touch people who are on the nice list. What a terrible, terrible image and view of God. Romans 5.8 says this. It says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were what? Still sinners. I've gone through various translations and I've never found the one that says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us once we got over our sin. Once we started performing just that little bit better, he went, okay, you've got me, okay. You ever have those moments, you know? 
Uh, anyone with, the, with their kids, you know, they're, 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 there's a naughty list and a nice list and the kids can be on the nice list and, you know, and then sometimes they end up on the naughty list. All kids end up sometimes on the naughty list and there's a clear black and white line but they, they're inching their way towards the line to cross over and you just, as a parent, you just have those gracious moments. You go, oh, okay, we just, I'll just bless you anyway. Even though you haven't quite got across on the nice list, I'll, I'll just do it anyway. It's reluctant. But we do it anyway. I'll just let you. I'll let you off the hook a little bit. You know, you were grounded for five years, but you've done forever. I'll let you off now. Go back out and play with your friends who don't live in town anymore and don't know you because they haven't seen you for three years. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. In other words, what the Bible's saying is Santa Claus got it wrong. Santa Claus went to the wrong group of people. Santa Claus went to the naughty list. He went to the naughty list and he did something and he blessed and he gave the people who were on the naughty list, those who were still sinners on the naughty list. Santa Claus got it wrong and he came to the naughty list. Thank God he is not like Santa Claus. Otherwise this scripture and many others like it would not be in the Bible. The testimony of us being able to come freely to God because of his grace and goodness, none of us would actually be standing before God. None of us would even be here if God was like a Santa Claus and treated us as our sins deserved. Now, did Jesus reveal the Father as a Santa Claus? Did Jesus, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, did Jesus reveal God as a Santa Claus? Yeah, one of the best stories uh, that I find in the Bible to illustrate this is in Luke chapter 7, verse 1 to 7, the faith of the Roman centurion. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. (coughs) So he earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. And here's what they said. They came along and here's what they said to Jesus. They said, Santa Claus, this dude is on the nice list. Santa Claus, this guy's on the nice list. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves Jewish people. He even built us a synagogue. I mean, he goes to church every Sunday. He does a beautiful spread of morning tea. It's unbelievable. It's probably the best, you know. He comes in early, he sets the chairs out. He puts the curtains up. You should see how much he tithes. It's outrageous. This guy does a lot. He is definitely on the nice list, Santa. So because he's on the nice list, we expect that you should do something for him. This is what they're saying. You should do this for him because he's performed really, really well. He deserves this. And as the story goes on, it says, So Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say this, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honour. In other words, the Jewish elders went there and said, Santa Claus, this guy deserves a blessing. This guy deserves a present. Load up your sack, come with us, let's fly to his house, we go down the chimney, give him something. He deserves a blessing, he's on the nice list. But this gentleman here, when he hears that Jesus is coming, he goes, Jesus, I know that you're not Santa Claus. And I know that I am probably on the naughty list. But because I know you're not Santa Claus, and I know that it's not about my performance, but it's about how great and awesome you are, I still have the confidence to come and ask you, can you do something for me? 
You know, the Bible says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. If you think that God is sitting there judging your performance, you will most likely never experience what it means to come boldly before a throne of grace if you don't feel like you have the right to do it. If you don't feel like you can come boldly before the throne of grace, you know what you'll do? You'll be one of these... You ever seen those movies where you've got the royal uh, king there and the, and, the, and the scabby person comes on in and, and they've got to go up to the king and they're on their hands and knees and they're just clawing away. I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. You know that? Ever seen those movies? And they crawl their way up. Oh, I'm not worthy. God. And they get there and they can't even look up at the king. Oh, no, you'll beat me. You'll beat me. Why? Because I know who you are. And I know who I am, and I'm on the naughty list. I'm not good enough to do this. You know, the Bible doesn't paint a picture that we should approach God like that. It says that we should come boldly, confidently, before his throne of of works. Is that right? Hang on. Now I got that wrong. It says we should come boldly and confidently before his throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. In other words, when I come boldly before God, I'm not coming to God looking at me going, have I performed good enough? Have I performed well enough? When I come to God, I'm looking at him going, it doesn't matter how I've performed, you're good. You're good. You're loving. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're God. I mean, if while I'm still a sinner, you would die for me, how much more would you do for me now that I've turned my life over to you? If it wasn't, if you loved me that much, that while I was at my lowest, weakest, dirtiest point, that you would pay the ultimate sacrifice, give the thing that was of the most value for that which had the least value, how can I not come boldly before you now? Amen? How can I not come boldly before you now? But if you see God as a Santa Claus, you'll never experience that. You'll always be the one crawling, dragging himself along by one hand up the aisle. Never quite sure how close you're going to be able to get Expecting at any point now somebody's going to stomp on my hand and say, that's enough. Don't you dare come any closer. Do you realise who you're approaching? And do you realise who you are? You see? God is not a Santa Claus. The Jewish leaders came along. Santa Claus, he's on the nice list. The man came along and said, you're not a Santa Claus. If you were, I'd be on the naughty list. But because I know you're not Santa Claus, I know I can come boldly before you and I can ask you, I can request you to help me and to do what I need to be done. If you go to John chapter 8, we're about turning there, but we all know the story about the woman caught in adultery. You ever know that story? woman caught in adultery. <laughs> Jesus is walking along one day and all of a sudden along comes a mob. And they're angry and they're making a lot of noise and they've got this woman and they drag her in front of Jesus and they throw her on the ground in front of Jesus and they look him in the eye. And here's what they do. They go, Santa Claus, this woman's on the naughty list. This woman's on the naughty list. What are you going to do? Because, of course, you know, if you're on the naughty list, you don't get anything nice. If you're on the naughty list, you are not going to get grace. If you're on the naughty list, you are not going to get blessed. If you're on the naughty list, you're not going to get uh, uh, God to go out of his way to help you. If you're on the naughty list, he's not going to give you his ear and listen to you. You don't do that to people on the naughty list, do you? You just fly straight over the top of their house and you go and you focus on those who are on the nice list. Isn't it interesting, Jesus, just in general, if, if, if there was a list of people there... Who did he tend to spend most of his time socialising with? Was it those on the naughty list or those on the nice list? Every time I see him having a meal, bar probably a couple of times, he's always sitting there with people who I'm going, they're on the naughty list. You know? They're on the naughty list. Every time I say the word naughty list, I think of you, Cheryl. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus hung out with people on the naughty list. And this crowd come along and they get this woman, they throw it down, they say, she's on the naughty list. Look, look what she has done. 
And we don't know exactly what he wrote, but the Bible says that Jesus leans down in the sand and he starts writing on the sand. Before he does that, he makes this statement to him. He goes, Rightio, no drowners. He goes, You who is without sin, you throw the first stone at her. I'll support you. I'll high five you after it. Just make sure that you're the right person. Just make sure that you're on the good list. Make sure you're on the nice list. So if you're on the naughty list, you can't throw stones at other naughty people because you're throwing a stone straight back at yourself. But if, you're, if you think you're there. And then the Bible says he bends down and writes with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. You know, read different commentaries and you'll get all kinds of speculation. Maybe he wrote the word adultery in front of a guy that was doing the very same thing as this woman. Maybe the guy was the one who was with the woman. But of course, it's funny how in the story we only hear about a woman and apparently she committed adultery by herself. It's another miracle in the word of God. It's full of miracles, the Bible. She's committed adultery by herself. It's a miracle. You know? And the Bible says one by one they dropped all their stones and then by the time Jesus stood up, nobody was standing there but Santa Claus and the woman on the naughty list. Now what does Santa Claus do to people on the naughty list? He just flies straight up above their house and disappears. He has nothing to do with them. What does Jesus do? He says to this woman, who condemns you? And she says, no one. Now keep in mind, when he said, if you're without sin, you can cast the first stone, there was one person there who could have done it. Jesus. He could have rightfully, righteously picked up a stone and gone to town on that woman. He says to her, who's there to condemn you? She says, no one. And he says this, he says, neither do I. Neither do I. In other words, he comes along to a person on the naughty list and he blessed them. He saved a life. He gave a grace. He gave a dignity. He put her on a level with the rest of the people that were there pointing fingers and judging. She's down here. She's the... By the time Jesus was finished, she was up here. He restored a bit of self-esteem, a bit of self-respect. Maybe got rid of that Santa Claus view of God, that, that performance base and said, you know what? I love you anyway, even when you underperform, even when you underachieve, even when you're not everything that, that, that you think you should be, even when you're not everything that I think you should be. I still have tremendous grace and tremendous mercy for you. You know, I often think about this works-based mentality that we have in the West when it comes to God. And we've got to be very careful as believers because if we buy into this stuff, you see, Jesus, God in the beginning created this principle right back in the Garden of Eden. And it's this. He said that everything that, that, that has a seed within itself and everything will produce after its own kind. That's what he said right in the beginning. That's why when you plant an apple seed, you get a... You don't get a grape. I knew what you were thinking. You plant an apple seed, you get a what? Apple. You plant orange tree, orange seeds, you get what? Weeds. <laughs> Everything produces after its own kind. Everything produces after its own kind. You know, I always think about that in the context of trying to reach a community. You know, if I think God is a Santa Claus God, and if I come and share my faith, I'm sharing it from the basis of a performance God. And if you are silly enough to come to that God who's going to judge you for your performance and I have any involvement in your discipleship process, I'm going to disciple you the same way. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm just going to produce another person who... It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said to them, you, you, you spend a billion dollars and you get in ships and you go to every nation in the far reaches of the world to get one disciple, then you turn them into as much a son of hell as you are. Remember that? Jesus said that to the Pharisees. He said, you go out on mission trips. In other words, you go and you create converts, but you turn the converts into the same people you are. Proud, arrogant, 
Never heard the voice of the Father. You do the same thing. Because what you are in your image of God and how you see God, you will reproduce that in other people. It's just the way it is. You will not reproduce something different. You only reproduce what you have and who you are. And if we think that God is a performance-based God, that's the message we're taking to the world. So we've got to look at some of these misconceptions and deal with some of them and straighten some of them out and go back to Jesus who very boldly declared, hey, people, you want to know what God is like? Please, don't, you don't have to listen to this preacher, that preacher. You don't have to look at that. Here, I'm giving you the number one example, the perfect person you should look at, and my name is Jesus, and here I am. And I've recorded it throughout history. I witness accounts of who I was, what I did, how I dealt with people, so you can have a, a more clearer picture of who God the Father is. He is the the exact replica, the visible image of the invisible God, is the way that the Bible puts it. Jesus never treated people as if you're on a naughty list or a nice list. Jesus gave grace to people. I often wonder what the difference looks like from the eyes of God and from where God is. What's the gap between my greatest work I've ever done, most righteous thing I've ever done, and probably the dirtiest, most wicked, despicable thing I've ever done? From God's perspective. You see, we judge from a human perspective, don't we? We look at people and we, we, ju- we make judgments. It's what we do. We've been doing it ever since the Garden of Eden. It's within us. We sit there and, and whether we want to do it or not, we hear someone say something and we make a judgment. We see someone do something, we make a judgment. We go to the shops, we see the lady at the shops, she's got the little child and he's kicking and screaming and she turns around, she snaps and she bash, gives him a big whack and we think straight away, what a bad parent. But we don't know the whole story how she's been putting up with this for months and months and months, how she's been so perfectly gracious throughout the whole process and had one moment of weakness, we brand her straight away, you're a bad mother. That's what we do. We look at things and we make judgments and so on. It's been in mankind since the Garden of Eden when all of a sudden uh, Adam said, you know what, God, this ain't my fault. You and her. You gave her to me and she gave me the apple. You guys deal with it. You know? And Eve goes, well, not really my fault. That snake. You don't talk to him. We've been passing the buck and making judgments and trying to elevate ourselves and put others down. It's, 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 it's what happens. It's human nature, unfortunately, unredeemed human nature. But I think if God's sitting up there in heaven and looks down upon me, the greatest work I could do and the smallest, most insignificant, wicked thing I could do, I reckon from God's perspective where he's sitting, the gap's probably about that big. The gap's probably about that big. See, none of us, the Bible says, none are righteous, not one. In our own selves, our greatest act of heroic righteousness and our our worst, dirtiest act are so close because when we judge on a human scale, yeah, we might think they're poles apart, but when you're talking about the perfection, the holiness, the righteousness of God Almighty himself, when you talk about judging a human being on that scale, my, my, my brightest day and my darkest night, not much of a difference, really. God doesn't love me because of my performance. My greatest act of righteousness would still be filthy compared to the holiness of God. That's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches us. It says that our greatest right, our, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. It's not to put us down at all. It's to highlight how great and wonderful God is and that that God still accepts you and still loves you. And still wants to come to you. And you can still hold your head high and pray to him. Even though you failed last night. Or you failed yesterday. You can still come boldly before him. He's not condemning you. He's not turning his back on you because you are imperfect. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that we read about. 
in the Bible, but we do it. We, we, we think that God is like that. It says in Psalm 103 verse 10, it says, He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. Santa Claus does. Santa Claus does. He'll deal with you exactly as you deserve. 364 days, I'm watching you. And you're on the naughty list, so now I'm going to deal with you as I would anybody else on the naughty list. I'm going to fly straight over the top of your house. You're on the nice list? Well, I'll come to you and so on. Santa Claus will judge you that way, but God doesn't. He doesn't deal with us harshly. He doesn't even deal with us as our sins deserve. Ezra, chapter 9, verse 13, says this, speaking of Israel. says, Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and great guilt. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. Israel as a nation, we have been punished by God, but we've been punished far less than we actually deserve. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive. You know, I should be wiped out. In the economy and scale of God's perfection and holiness and righteousness, the very first bad thought I had, he should have put his thumb down on me like an ant and squashed me into the ground. That's what I deserved. That would have been righteous on God's behalf to deal with me that way. But he doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. So here's the thing about Santa Claus. Santa Claus doesn't care why you're naughty, just that you were naughty. Santa Claus doesn't care why you were nice, just that you were nice. He doesn't care about the reasons behind it. He doesn't care about the motivations. He doesn't care about what shaped you to think and act and be. He doesn't care about the battles you're facing. He doesn't care about the struggles you have. Santa Claus just cares about one thing. Which list are you on? And God is not a Santa Claus because God cares about our struggles. God understands our human frailties and he understands our human weakness. And he comes to us and he meets us in those places and he meets us in those moments. We don't need to, as Christians, deny that side of ourselves. We embrace that side as a part of our journey. And God comes and he meets us in the midst of those moments. And he comes to us and he says, you know what? I'm not Santa Claus. I'm not chucking you on the naughty list right now where you feel like you need to work your way back up to be able to come to me to help you. No, no. He says, I'm right there in the midst of the muck and the rubbish and I'm ready to help you right now. As you are broken, twisted, hurt, whatever it is, I'm there right now. That's the image that the Bible paints of God. That's the God <coughs> that we follow. Our problem is we don't believe it, so we don't embrace it. It's like years ago I took Jonathan, and uh, my middle boy, and one of his mates fishing. Um, I don't know if I've shared this story <coughs> with you before, but we went fishing down at, um, at uh, uh, West Ballina on the jetty, and uh, jo- Johnny wanted to go, so I said, yeah, I took him, and he had a mate of his, a young Elijah, who came along last week to church. And we went fishing together and uh, I had a, a, put some rods together and one of them was a really good rod. It was quite a nice rod but because we are taking Elijah with us. I said, no worries, right, I'll put this nice one together we'll go. We went fishing. The one thing I said to them, one thing, I only said one, one rule. You know, it's a bit like the garden. Do whatever you want, just don't eat that tree. That's what I said. You can do whatever you want, just don't put the rod down and out of your hands. Just don't do that. Because if something big takes it, woof, gone. <coughs> and so what's the one thing that he does? Of course, the one thing you said don't do. That's what kids do. So he casts out, he puts it down, he turns around, walks over to me, and next thing I hear this splash. I look behind me, and there's the rod sitting in the top of the water, and then I look beside me, and here's Jonathan standing next to me, having a good old time just watching me fish. What are you doing? What? Look, ah! I threw the rod down, I ran over to the edge of the jetty, I'm taking my shoes off, my pants, my shoes, I'm down to my underpants, just about to dive in, and the tip of the rod goes, shoot, 
disappeared, completely gone, never seen it to this day. Well, do you think I was happy about that? I turned around to Jonathan and I said, it's, it's all good, doesn't matter. It's just a fishing rod. No, I did not. I turned around and I said, what were you thinking? I told you not to do that. And I started getting frustrated at this poor kid. He's just sitting there, ah. And he goes, oh, Dad, I'm sorry. And in a moment of clarity, I went, okay, I forgive you. And then you know what he did? He just said, have you got another rod? Can I fish again? What? Don't you realise what you've just done? You've lost my best fishing rod and you're just going to get over it like that, are you? Just move on forward like nothing happened. Come on. And I wanted to shake him. But in that moment, I felt quietly that God spoke to me. Right in that moment. He said, what are you angry at? All he's done is accept your grace. All he's done is accept your grace. That's what's like with God. We make a mistake. We fall short. We don't quite nail it. <laughs> Father, I'm sorry. And he goes, I forgive you. And we move on with life. But we don't because we struggle with that. Because a part of us still feels like it can't be that simple, God. We, I must have to do something to earn it back. Yet yeah? There must be something, God, that I can do to earn back that favour, to, to get back to that place where I feel bold enough to come before you again, where I feel that I'm clean enough to ask you to bless me financially or clean enough to ask you to help me get that new job or clean enough to ask you to, 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 to you know, help me with this sickness. I'm we, we, there's these things. We feel like we've got to work our way back in. You know? But yet when God... See, here's the thing. You know why Johnny reacted the way he did? Because he actually believed me when I said, I forgive you. He actually had the audacity. Oh, so even now I'm starting to boil, Carmen. I get it together. He had the audacity to believe that when I said, I forgive you, I actually meant it. Come on, who does that? Seriously, who does that? You know? Someone says, I forgive you. As if. But... God does. He loves us regardless. <laughs> he loves us regardless. He keeps us on the nice list. God doesn't have a naughty list because he knows we're fragile, broken, hurting people. He knows we're human. He knows that we are frail. You know, when I <coughs> just got saved, I'm about to finish up here. When I got saved, I moved in with a couple called um, John and Joan Hannaford. Anyone know the Hannafords in Bella? When I Just when I got saved, they asked me would I come and live with them. And so I did. I moved in with them. And I got a job at Sunny Brand Chickens in Byron Bay. You remember Sunny Brand Chickens used to be out by? Yeah, I got a job there. And I was an advanced prepared chicken handler. That was my official title. Okay? It basically meant I cut bones out of dead chickens. But, you know, that's not cool. You, you go and meeting people, what do you do for a I cut bones out of dead chickens. No. But when I would say I'm an advanced prepared chicken handler, you could see people go, ooh, this guy knows stuff. This guy's important, you know? I'm an advanced prepared chicken handler. <laughs> and so... What happened was I used to get out of bed at about 4 o'clock in the morning because I'd have to be in Byron by, I think it was about quarter past 5 or something to start. And I was in the big cold room cutting chickens all day and finish work at 2 and I'd go for a surf in Byron and then come home. And, 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 and this was, by the way, this was hell for a guy that had absolutely no discipline. You want me to get out of bed, what? When? Be at work, when? You know, I'm getting up and it's dark. Anyone ever get out of bed when it's dark? There's a reason why it's dark. Because you're not meant to see it. You shouldn't be out of bed then, okay? Wait till the sun's up, yay! I've since learnt some, they're the best moments of the day, actually, to get things done. But anyway, I, I used to have to get out of bed, and I remember getting out of bed one morning. What happened was, 
was um, I, I rolled over and looked at my alarm clock and it was blank. You know, the, the number that... It, it was blank. There was nothing. And I thought, that's really strange. <laughs> so I picked up my watch off the thing and looked and said, oh, it's, I sh- my alarm should have already gone off. It, it hasn't gone off. So I got out of where they lived. They had a little um, rectangular courtyard in the middle of the house, the manse, the United Church manse at the time. And they had a garden shed. So John just took all the garden implements out and put some plasterboard up and that was my bedroom. That's where I lived, in this little garden shed. So I came out and I crept out to the courtyard and I looked around the house through the windows in the courtyard, not one light. You know, everything's got a light. You know, microwave has a light. Everything's got sort of a light. Nothing. So I walked out the front of the house. All the street lights were off. Everything was gone. There was an, I didn't know at the time, but there was a massive power blackout, power outage in the whole area. And here's what I did. Because I've just gotten saved, keep in mind. I walked back inside the the quadrangle everything I sat down on a chair and I looked up at the sky and I went so I didn't make it I thought rapture had happened I thought that Jesus had come back in the night like the Bible says I don't know nothing I just know the Bible says like a thief in the night the thief came in the night and I'm still here and I sat there and I started going through my head going okay so what did I do wrong what did I do wrong I remember it as if it was yesterday, sitting there thinking, the rapture's come, I missed out. Maybe, you know, I wish I had met Jesus six months earlier. I could have done a few more good things, maybe slipped in, but obviously I got saved too late. The cutoff date, I just missed the use-by date by a couple of days, got saved. It's all been a waste of time. Irrelevant. And I'm thinking, what did I do that when he came down and looked at me, he went, oh, hang on, naughty, not, he's on the naughty list, leave him. And he walked into the other bedroom, took the rest of the family and left me. Frightening feeling. But I remember thinking that. My first thought, what did I do wrong? We can be like that too, can't we? We honestly can. Bad things happen to us. And what's, oh, what did I do wrong? I, I'm, I'm praying for something and it's not getting the answer I want and the time frame I want, whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me? You know? We can be like that. Praise God that Jesus never revealed a picture of the Father that was performance-based like Santa Claus is. Here's the thing. I'll close with this. When, when, when we grew up, some of us may have experienced life like this, you know? It's one thing to live in the consequences of deliberate disobedience and rebellion. It's another thing to be punished because you're imperfect. It's one thing to live in the consequences of deliberate disobedience and rebellion. Okay, if my kids are deliberately disobedient or rebellious, then I feel like I will discipline them. It's what I do. But how often growing up were we disciplined because we were just simply imperfect? Maybe we weren't as smart as the other kids, so we didn't remember things the way they did. But we were disciplined as if that was an evil, bad thing. You know? How many times did we do things, but... Maybe they weren't as good as what was expected. or they were. It wasn't that we were being deliberately disobedient. It wasn't that we were being rebellious. We just, I, I can't do it like that, Mum. I can't do it like that, Dad. I, 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 I'm doing my best here. But we get punished. And we grow up thinking that, re, that we get punished, that God is angry with us because of our imperfections. Does that make sense? It's one thing. Yes, it says there that, that God didn't deal with Israel the way they should have been dealt with. Israel were deliberately disobedient and rebellious. 
on many occasions. And you look at the history of Israel, they paid a massive price for that. Okay? There's a big difference between being deliberately disobedient, rebellious, and being imperfect. Or just simply falling short because you're just not up to standard or you're not good. Because we are imperfect, some of us feel like we're placed on the naughty list. So how do you get back on the nice list? Well, you've got to become perfect. You've got to work harder. You've got to be better. And it's such a bad view of God. And when we have that view of the Father, we are being ripped off in our relationship with him. We're missing the purity of a child being able to come to his father and just go, here I am. Daddy, what do you want to say? Daddy, I'm struggling. Daddy, I'm hurting. Dad, I need help. Because we're always looking first at ourselves. Are we able to do that? Because it's all about us. Jesus painted this picture where it's not about you. It's not about your goodness. It's about God's greatness and God's grace and God's mercy. Because of that, we can come boldly before the throne of grace because God understands my imperfections. God understands my weaknesses. God understands the struggles that I have. God understands where they came from, how they entered my world. God understands that. And he is committed as a loving father to journey with me and walk with me as long as it takes. How many of you know that none of you are going to be perfect when you get to heaven? None of us are going to be perfect when we get to heaven. Some of you are going to get to heaven and you'll probably still struggle with anger. Some of you may get to heaven and you'll be struggling with with perfectionism. Some of you are going to get to heaven and stand before your father and he's going to look at you and he's going to know that you've struggled with other secret sins in your life. But he's going to embrace you anyway. Because when he looks upon us, he sees Jesus. Amen? Father, I just pray this morning, God, for each of us. Here, God, as we, over these coming weeks, God, and the last couple of weeks, we unpack these different ideas and images of God. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would take us back to the Word of God. Father, uh, reveal to us what, it meant, what Jesus meant when he said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. God, I pray that we would not just hear these messages on a Sunday and then get on with the rest of our life, but God, we would, we would allow them to, to enter our spirit, God. We'd allow these words of Jesus to soak into our heart. <coughs> God, we would go back to the word of God. We would explore, Father. We would come before you in our own quiet space and just ask you, Father. God, show us. Show us areas where we see you like a cosmic killjoy. Or show me areas where I view you like a Santa Claus. And God, help me go to those moments. Help me find those places where that started. Help me unpack that stuff. And help me move forward, God, so that we can have a clearer picture of who you are, God. That you are a loving, gracious Father who does not who does not deal with us as our sins deserve. We thank you for your amazing, amazing grace of this morning, God. And Father, I pray for each of us here, Lord, as we go out from this place. Keep us safe, watch over us. And uh, Father, I pray too, God, that in the next week that you would give each of us in this room an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody who does not know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. People, have a great week. Uh, Enjoy your connect groups that are up and running. We'll... See you around the space somewhere.